0: Welcome back to Movement Matters, a forced perspective of New Testament restoration. I am Steve Carr. Welcome to Lesson 4. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Again, if you have grabbed these podcasts uh, online, that's great. I hope you're enjoying the listen. But if you would like to learn even more, this is part of a free Curriculum that I've created uh, called Movement Matters, and you can download different notes and resources, and get access to videos via my personal website. That is houseofcar.com/movement. That is houseofcar. That's c-a-r-r.com/movement. You can grab some resources there, and even if you need to, you can find my contact. Get a hold of me. I would love to. Be able to answer questions that you might have, but uh, again, this is a high-level view of the restoration movement. So um, it's a good way to get introduced to this obscure uh, movement of independent churches that have had a massive impact on global Christianity. So glad that you're there. We are in lesson four. This is the force of finance. I know everybody loves to talk about the monies, and we're going to get that done right here. Lesson four, the force of finance, part one. Won't you be my sugar mama? I never imagined that the Postal Service would be a controversial subject in our digital era the idea of a postage stamp seems archaic doesn't it (laughs) but during the early days of the united states postal service was critical and as the country expanded across the western frontier mail access was vital it provided access to information to thoughts and ideas in the early 19th century Postmasters were among America's most important citizens, but at the same time, postal service was very inconsistent and rather costly, and service was so unreliable that the United States government was forced to get involved. After the American Revolution, the post office became an official government institution, and since mail was essential to life as an American – Postmasters were key local figures. Enter Alexander Campbell. Now you'll recall that we introduced him, one of the most influential thinkers and influencers in the restoration movement. He Alexander Campbell was appointed as a postmaster in 1828. He actually oversaw the post office of Buffalo, Virginia. And by the way, it just always is interesting to me, Buffalo is spelled B-U-F-F-A-L-O-E. Like at the end, it says aloe. It just always looks peculiar. But it was spelled that way. And even though it was in Virginia at the time, it's actually located in what is now the state of West Virginia, so Campbell is the postmaster, and because of this position, he had leverage to rename the town in which he lived. So maybe – I don't know if it was that awkward spelling of Buffalo that incited him to change the name, but he decided to name it after the home of, uh, hometown of Mary and Martha in the Bible. He called the town Bethany. Now. Campbell, as a postmaster, had many different goals, but one of them was uh, not, I don't think, to rename the town or to handle other people's mail. There was another attraction that motivated Campbell to want to pursue the position of postmaster, and that is known as franking privilege. In those days, postmasters could take advantage of what was known as franking privilege— This was the right to send as much mail as a postmaster desired without having to pay postage. Now, why was this important to Campbell? You see, in seeking to spread the message of New Testament restoration, he had a plan. Because if you will see, just two years after he became postmaster at Bethany, he started a religious magazine. And Campbell used his franking privilege to mail that magazine called The Millennial Harbinger for free. It would eventually go on to become the most influential publication in restoration movement history. Campbell, the postmaster, could spread restoration ideals all over the country. And years later... Maybe because of Campbell. It was probably because other postmasters were doing the same. I don't know if you would call it taking advantage of the privilege. But basically, the government said, look, we're spending too much money where these postmasters are taking advantage of franking. We are going to severely limit the franking privilege. And at this point, Campbell reduced the amount of editions or the, uh, the amount of magazines that he sent across the country because he had to start paying for it. So why am I telling you this obscure story about Campbell the Postmaster? I tell you this so that you can understand one of the reasons why Campbell became such an influential leader in the restoration movement. Because I think I mentioned before, right, is that because of this privilege and because of the position uh, that was afforded by serving as postmaster, it, at this time it was a highly desired post. So, how did Alexander Campbell become postmaster? Well, you know, he's a revered historical figure today. In his early life, I mean, Alexander Campbell was rather ordinary. He came from an immigrant family, a a family who lacked rich political connections. I mean Campbell was the son of a preacher, and again, I'm an ordained minister. This is not to denigrate preachers, but they just did not hold much influence. So there's nothing in his family background or his early calling that makes him the natural choice to serve in one of the most prominent positions in his town. So why did Buffalo appoint a common fellow to a respected position? We trace this back to a connection with Alexander's father, Thomas. Thomas had maintained a friendship with a wealthy farmer in the town of Buffalo. His name was John Brown. He was one of the biggest landowners in the region. And because of this friendship... Alexander was able to court and date the farmer's daughter. Just sounds like a sounds like a nice swell tale right there, right? So Alexander is courting the farmer's daughter. He and Margaret Brown fall in love and eventually get married. And I will tell you, it's this marriage that transforms not only Alexander's life but also the restoration movement. Because as I said, the Brown family, wealthy farmers, they were highly respected in the town of Buffalo. And once they were married then, Alexander was able to take advantage of the influence of his wife's family. And one of those benefits was his subsequent appointment as postmaster of the town of Buffalo. So that was incredibly transformational. Because essentially, it provided funding for the restoration plea to be able to spread across the new country. If you take away Alexander Campbell's influential in laws and his postmastership, perhaps everything is different. It's possible that our movement never becomes what it is today without the influence of the Brown estate. Now, stick with me here. I'm not suggesting that Alexander married Margaret for the money right but we need to be honest that his union undoubtedly helped our cause that postmaster gig and the free postage propelled the restoration movement forward and if you think about this a little different or a little deeper it's kind of interesting because of that franking privilege the growth of the restoration movement was at least partially funded from the taxes paid for by united states citizens And businesses, friends That's why they always say And it's true in the restoration movement When you examine any movement You want to follow the money trail And that's why In lesson four We're focusing in On the force of finance Part two Inverting the prince And the pauper So to better understand The force of finance Let's take another historical look, okay? We've seen before, we talk about the two individuals that loom largest over our fellowship. We've introduced them in these previous lessons, right? Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone. Sometimes I call them Bart. But these two men embody the principles of the Restoration Movement, right? I talked about that within orthodoxy and right thought. You know, Campbell was the great thinker, Barton Stone, orthopraxy. He was just active in his ministry. Of all the scriptural commonalities that they shared, when it came to their financial positions, they were passing ships. Alexander Campbell started from the bottom and ended up wealthy, whereas Barton Stone was born into affluence but died in abject poverty. So let's first take a look at Barton Stone. Remember, he was the Presbyterian minister who participated in the Cane Ridge Revival, helped to start the Springfield Presbytery and then was involved in its demise and its last will and testament, right? So Barton Stone came from a family that was part of Southern aristocracy, right? One of his ancestors was actually the governor of Maryland, And by the way, in that day, you only really became governor through having some sort of wealth. So this affirms the story. So sadly, Stone's father died when he was very young, and it forced his mother then to make some challenging financial decisions. And one of those moves was how she would spend or even invest the family's inheritance. And she devoted a part of the proceeds of that estate to investing in Barton's education. And she urged him to study for a career – In law, Uh, because then if he became a lawyer, he could eventually support his entire family. But much to his mother's dismay, Stone (laughs) chose to become. A minister. This is very similar. If you ever go back and look at the story of the calling of Martin Luther, it, it really has some parallels right there, where Luther's father wanted him to become a professional, and yet he became a, a minister. So by pursuing ministry, Stone's family did not benefit financially from his career choice. Now let's let's go to the other side and look at Alexander Campbell. We mentioned earlier that he was the son of an immigrant preacher. His family didn't live in poverty, but they definitely understood what it meant to scrape by. And just like Stone, Alexander pursued a career in the ministry. But as we saw in part one of this lesson, Alexander married into wealth. Campbell's access to his in-law's resources provided him certain freedoms. He, he didn't bear the burden of providing uh, uh, for his family. He, that Those financial pressures were not there. Campbell was able to fully devote himself to the restoration of the New Testament. Now, later years in life, the paths of the two men were very different. Stone faced economic uncertainty. This would have been typical for a frontier preacher who was not part of a denomination. In the early days of the Restoration Movement, ministers weren't paid for their work, and as a result, Stone needed to tend to his farm to provide for his family. It was a challenge for him to find time to both preach and do the work of the farm. So we know, reading the accounts, that Stone would put in long hours going out and preaching and then working the farm late into the night. For decades, Stone supplemented his preaching ministry vocationally, and he did so with hard labor. And this intense ministry farming regimen negatively impacted Stone's health. He was ill later in life, and, and he was poor as he approached his life's end. So, now that we see those two views of stone and campbell let's just dig a little deeper let's examine how the two of them then viewed wealth and poverty those those issues of finance because we can look back in their writings both men ran magazines stone had his own magazine as well as alexander having one stone tended to take a more primitive approach to finance in his context He saw living off the land as a typical means of survival, that he was involved in hunting and homesteading, and this required vigorous work. That was part of the frontier perspective of how uh, an American homesteader would have viewed their existence, and that also then had implications on how Barton Stone viewed wealth because continually within his preaching, he advocated for more modest Living In his magazine, The Christian Messenger, which compared to The Millennial Harbinger was not nearly as as read widely, but we still have copies of Stone's magazine today. Stone wrote in his magazine that Jesus' journey from heaven to earth brought him to poverty. Right, So when he is looking at himself in the mirror, Stone believes that the way that you are supposed to live financially was to emulate the impo- impoverished lifestyle of Christ. So he advocated for a way of life that matched up with his worldview. And this humble financial style he believed was the true way of Jesus – Now, Alexander Campbell, on the other hand, he was influenced by his access to wealth. He would freely acknowledge by reading the New Testament that Jesus lived a life of poverty— But he didn't believe it was an attribute that Christians were called to emulate. In The Millennial Harbinger, Campbell attacked the meager lifestyle of Catholic priests. Right, They take these vows, and priests vowed to live very poorly. He criticized them for living lives of financial abstinence. He said that they were disavowed of all the business and enjoyment of society. In Campbell's eyes, poverty wasn't sinful, but it definitely wasn't good. Campbell saw wealth and specifically the way that he could access wealth as being a reflection of the benefits of righteous living. Now, looking at the way that both Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone viewed finance and how it, you know, it, it just what I want to say oozed out of their being, I think that's important because we then have to take a look at their socioeconomic situations. And see how they check in with their views. Because this is where I'm at when I look at this, people. And this is this is what plagued me for the longest time about Alexander's story of being the postmaster. Because generally in the restoration movement, we think of Alexander Campbell. And we believe that he was just this unparalleled intellectual. while well, Barton Stone... I mean we, we see him as a good guy. It's like he had all the right intentions. But there are people, when you read into Stone's theology, he is sometimes widely criticized because it's like he's just figuring things out on the fly. Actually, there's, a, there's, there's quite a few people in the movement that say Barton Stone really wouldn't even pass for being part of the restoration movement today because of some of his more heretical ideas. And as I look at that, I'm just like, OK, was he just uh, was he just trying to push the boundaries? I'm not sure it was that as much as he was not afforded the time and the opportunity to be able to study that Alexander Campbell was. That's what I say was was the way that this all occurred merely a reflection of where Stone and Campbell were on the social economic Timeline. I mean, what if what if Barton Stone had a sugar mama? What if Stone had been able to spend his days fully focused on ministry? I mean, if he had the financial resources, maybe today we would view him as prolifically as we view Campbell. Or let's let's flip the coin, right? Let's look at the inverse and consider if Campbell had not married Margaret Brown. And had to live his life as a poor preacher. We know that his father Thomas was already pursuing the restoration of the New Testament. But what would have become of Alexander Campbell? Would he, he, if he had to be bivocational, right? If he had to work another job, would he have been able to write and preach and debate as prolifically if he was still holding down a day job? I mean, I don't know what kind of farmer Alexander Campbell was I mean he lived on a farm but he didn't have to devote his time to that strenuous labor with the calluses of his working hands had permitted him the opportunity to be as great as he was I don't know it's all speculation right like we have no idea but I bring this up because it reminds us that we can't be naive in this conversation I mean, I believe in the plea of the restoration movement that it's powerful and compelling. But let's be honest, let's be honest. If they weren't financed well, they might never have taken root. And we need to be realistic then when it comes to the influence of finance today in the church. It has a massive impact on our fellowship. It's not necessarily good or bad. But at the very least, it's something that we are forced to consider. Part three, shake your moneymaker. So we need to consider how we, the children of God, view finances. Right now, with this force of finance, I, I speak of this. It's interesting because in recent years, that has been my field. I work in the field of finance, specifically church finance. And in this time and taking on my previous uh, jobs and experiences and studies, you know, one thing I've determined is that most Christians' view of finance isn't very biblical. In fact, I'd suggest that most believers have a view of finance that is shaped more by pragmatism than the word of God. And I'd say this is consistent with how the restoration movement has approached money. Generally, our perspective on finance flexes around how we need money, okay? So for a humble fellowship like ourselves, and it's very interesting in the last lesson I talked about how we don't show humility, but we, we aren't a massive denomination. We're a humble fellowship, right? For a humble fellowship, we have an abundance of resources at our fingertips, but as we view the management of those assets, we will find people in our fellowship on the opposite end of a spectrum. We brandish our resources either in excess or in scarcity. Excess or scarcity. So thinking about how we approach finances in excess, and that's why I wanted to bring this up. I talked about stone having to worth – bivocationally. It always makes me think of D.S. Burnett. D.S. Burnett is considered to be the very first paid minister in the restoration movement. The irony here is that Burnett really didn't need the money. He came from a very wealthy family in the city of Cincinnati. Still, what he was able to do was to take his family's wealth and he continued to invest it in the work of the kingdom of God. For example, D.S. employed an influential religious editor named Benjamin Franklin. Now, you hear Benjamin Franklin, you hear an editor. It's not the Benjamin Franklin from the Revolutionary War, although this Benjamin Franklin, who lived decades later, was a fourth-generation descendant from the Philadelphia icon. Franklin, just like Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, published his own Restoration Movement magazine, and Burnett invested in Benjamin Franklin's work but it was a peculiar arrangement because because Burnett was funding the uh, magazine work. It allowed him to hold certain influences over Franklin. Okay, so the finance was influential. But still, at least he was putting it toward the kingdom. And another example within the Restoration Movement is a man named Isaac Arrett and his family. Arrett himself was a magazine editor. You'll see this as a theme throughout <laughs> the Restoration history is that the growth of our movement has always been in the written word and has all, always been in magazines. And uh, Eret… Founded the Christian Standard magazine, and he parlayed that work from the magazine to form the Standard Publishing Company. They became the most influential business in the restoration movement, publishing curriculum, and they had massive (coughs) publishing agreements with places all over the region. It was quite a business. But Eretz's influence, which lasted well over a century, was inextricably linked to the wealth that he developed by running Standard Publishing Company. There's another large figure in the restoration movement named T.W. Phillips. Phillips funneled part of his family's fortune into numerous restoration movement ministries, and over 100 years after his death, the money that he earned while he was alive is still at work in some of our movement's most influential institutions. So I show you, these examples show that there's excess and that excess provides power so regardless of intention finance sways opinions and manipulates trajectories and even if the results are positive we must be careful in how we approach financial excess because those with considerable means can be elevated to positions where they have considerable influence so if we're looking at that you know there's excess and I don't want to get into scarcity, but that – man, that has happened so much in the restoration movement where people then who are in control of finance hold it over people. And sometimes they can turn the switch off of people who are trying to function and perform ministry. So either way, finance is such a force and has so much power. That as we continue to look at the restoration movement, and any movement for that matter, but as we hone in on this history, we must consider how we need to faithfully approach the wielding of our finances. And that is why I would suggest we take the path of generosity. For you see, money can unintentionally lead us toward unbridled pursuits of euphoria. How we manage our resources is a central aspect of our lives – as believers, that's the concept of stewardship, right? Is that we have these resources that God has provided to us. How do we then use those for the benefit of the kingdom? Too often, many of us use finance as a means to achieve our own happiness. And this puts us out of balance spiritually. So the answer definitely is not excess, but neither is it scarcity, There's this middle ground that we are called to stake, and that is generous living. Generosity isn't a biblical commandment for Christ followers, right? Generosity isn't a biblical commandment for Christ followers. Rather, it's a natural expression of a healthy view of stewardship right and we we aren't usually into talking about stewardship anymore it just sounds like you know the ex- expending of christian knees right like we're just throwing words out there but remember everything is the lord's we're merely in uh in given the opportunity to care for his stuff that was a concept unveiled in the garden of eden and it's still applicable today now Let's take this concept of stewardship and think about it more broadly. Let's think of it salvifically if you will. Right? We know the grace of Jesus, it is a gift. There is nothing that you and I can do to earn our salvation. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 verse 8, freely you have received, so freely give. So what we need to do to live in obedience to Jesus, is to take those resources that are poured through the funnel of compassion and to allow them to flow through us generously. Because Jesus was generous with his grace, so we should be generous with our own resources. Generosity will be a critical practice for the future of the restoration movement. And this is, again, working with churches and finance. Obviously, finance will continue to impact kingdom work. That is without a doubt, right? But here is the concern for the future of the Restoration Movement is that so much of our ministry as a non-denominational tribe has been based within these parachurch organizations, these institutions. And what we are seeing is that they are starting to struggle financially, and that's part of our ministry funding model. It's a challenge. Because these ministries that do great work globally, um, you know, here domestically, they rely on consistent donations on charitable gifts for success. And there are generosity shifts, I mean, those are taking place within organizations today as philanthropy levels continue to decline. And as that hits the local church, which is usually the primary source for the funding of these institutions and these parachurch ministries, works will become more constrained. There will be fewer individuals and institutions willing to support those ministries in our movement that are doing amazing work. Colleges, conventions, causes, they they all need help. And if our generosity doesn't increase, then our fellowship will most likely decrease. So if you mind, can I – let me go back into preaching. Can I close out with a challenge? If you're listening to this on audio, you've likely been blessed because of the restoration movement. Even if you're probably listening to this trying to figure it out, it's probably because of your interaction with a group of believers who are part of the restoration movement. So um, you've been blessed with resources. You might disagree. You know, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I do know at the very least if you live in the United States, you live in one of the wealthiest nations on the face of the earth. Even if we're in the midst of economic challenges, you are still blessed at a level – that other people cannot comprehend. So, um, it's on you, right? Like this is this is for you, even if you don't think it's about you. And by virtue of just listening to this podcast, you likely have a smartphone, right? Like, think about it—you're carrying a computer in your pocket. That's that's resource. So, even if you're listening to this, chances are you have some resource. So. I just say this: With what you have, you need to steward your resources and perhaps invest in these types of kingdom work when you have the opportunity. You need to give, and as you give to these ministries and develop a heart of generosity, you're not just giving, uh, you know, for your deduction or to feel better about yourself. You are stewarding the resources of God back into the kingdom. So you look in the mirror and you realize that you're the people you've been praying for. You're the one to be able to bless and provide for the work of the gospel all across the globe. And maybe it's not even your money. It should be your money, but maybe it's not. Maybe maybe there's something even more valuable. What's the most valuable commodity in existence? Time. You cannot buy time. So as the Lord has blessed you, take what you have, steward it well, invest in the work of the kingdom, live generously. Hey, thanks for joining me on another lesson of Movement Matters. Again, if you need to access the resources that you need to be able to continue to study these topics, they are free and available to you www.houseofcar slash movement until next time be blessed